So we are picking up in the middle of, well, I say in the middle, we're kind of about in the first third of our notes from last week. So if you have the notes from last week, um, you can get those out, the ones dated November 26th. If you were not here last week and you need some notes, I have a few. Is there anybody that wants some? Audrey was throwing tomatoes at the Pope. So she wasn't here. Do you need one to? Okay. So we are at the part of uh, directions. I don't have notes now. Directions for dealing with afflictions. A, don't be overcome with anger. B, don't be overwhelmed with grief. And we are in the middle of that section is where we are in our notes. And so uh, just to get a running start into where we've been, uh, several weeks ago before we went to Calgary, uh, I was in part eight, and that is walking with God in prosperity. And so this one is walking with God in affliction. And we've been looking at a few general guidelines that Henry Scudder gives about walking with God in affliction. Uh, Four just general things. You find these earlier on in your notes. General guidelines, he says, don't make them worse through impatience or discontentment. We, We often have afflictions that are really in the grand scheme of things, relatively minor. Um, But that really is not the point. But when we do face difficulty, affliction, trials, then don't make them worse with a bad attitude, right? Impatience or discontentment, we could kind of summarize it that way. Don't make your affliction worse by having a bad attitude about it. Two, don't let them overshadow all the other blessings that you have. And so something bad has happened to you, Um, not to be trite and and not to be silly uh, and not to overlook, uh, you know, a difficulty. But even in the midst of our difficulty, we can rejoice that at least it wasn't worse, right? It could have been worse. It could have been way worse. And and so the illustration I used, you know, maybe on the the lighter side, you know, a flat tire, right? A, A flat tire can ruin your day. Uh, put you in a bad mood, but you didn't wreck, right? You're not dead. You didn't crash into anything. You didn't hurt anybody. It's an inconvenience. It's a difficulty. Um, and, and so don't let the difficulty, don't let the trial overshadow all the blessings that you know. Uh, pray for and have pity on those who have offended you. So if your affliction is another person that is your affliction, well, rather than complaining about that person, Uh, How about pray for them? How about pity them? Especially if they have sinned against you and done you wrong, you know, legitimately in a sinful way. Pray for them that the Lord would have mercy on them. You think about Christ on the cross. What did Christ pray? He prayed, Father, forgive them. Uh, The Greek word there is actually the word permit. Father, permit them, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
And then the last one, make sure that you're not too easily offended. You know, if someone has done you wrong, have they actually sinned against you? Or have they just done something that, um, you know, you don't like? Whatever. So those are some general guidelines that he gives. And then he drills down into some more specific things that really deal with the heart of the matter, uh, starting with don't be overcome with anger. And then we're in this section now, don't be overcome with grief. And so what I want you to do now is turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And kind of where we left off at the end of last week's lesson was dealing with the subject of grief and the remedy, or at least one of, but he, he calls it the main remedy. He, he says in the book, this is the best remedy for dealing with grief, and that is to turn what he refers to as worldly grief into a godly sorrow. And he's using the phrase godly sorrow um, you know, straight from, from Scripture. And so 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 10. It says here, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so there we do have a contrast between worldly sorrow, as he puts it, and godly sorrow, as it said in Scripture. John Gill, commenting on this particular verse, I don't know if I have this quotation in your notes or not, but John Gill says, The sorrow of the world is often nothing more than a concern for the loss of worldly things, such as riches, honor, or for a disappointment in the gratification of worldly lusts and pleasures. You miss out on some opportunity. And then he goes on to say, in this ultimately worketh death. And so in the context of what Henry Scudder is talking about, of our walking with the Lord in times of affliction, take those, that grief that you would have in the midst of your affliction and refocus your, your whole thought process. Because he, he, he makes a big leap, but it, it's an appropriate leap, right? What is the source of your sorrow? What is the source of your affliction? Now, we boil it all down, and we get to the very root of the matter. It's sin. If it wasn't for sin, you wouldn't have any affliction. Regardless of what the affliction is, if it weren't for sin, there would be no affliction. And so rather than grieving over your particular circumstance, grieve over the fact that sin entered into the world and death by sin, and death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And, and wrestle in your own heart with the grief that sin causes not only in this circumstance, but sin always causes grief. Ultimately, pleasure for a season, but grief ultimately. And sorrow about that. Uh, another reference, turn over in your Bible to 1 Peter 1. Look at this passage. 1 Peter 1, 
uh, verse 6 is where we'll start reading. This godly sorrow that Paul has talked about in 2 Corinthians is a sorrow that ultimately leads us to Christ. I didn't mention this context, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostleship. He says some very hard things to the Corinthian believers, and the, the context of part of what he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 7 is that that hard letter that he sent, the Lord used that. The Lord used that to bring true repentance, a godly sorrow that led them to repentance. And you look at 1 Corinthians and all the problems in the church, and, and the Lord used his letter to, to help with that. And that godly sorrow that led them to repentance, well, it's a sorrow that leads us to Christ. When we, when we wrestle with the sinfulness of sin, and, and we truly begin to grieve over our sin, then it leads us to Christ as the only remedy for sin. There, there is no other way to deal with sin other than the person and work of Christ. And that, dealing with sin through Christ, the blood of Christ, that kind of godly sorrow is really the thing that leads us ultimately to a real joy. And this is what Peter talks about. 1 Peter 1, look at verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ." Whom, having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so what he's, what he's saying there is this great trial of your faith that works patience, it's a precious thing to you. Because as you endure that hardship, you endure that trial as we'll see later on uh, from the book of Job, Job says that going through those trials, the Lord uses that, and we come forth as gold. But that trial works in us great joy. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I've often wondered, as Peter wrote that, look at verse 7. I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if when Peter wrote those words with that bird feather on that piece of parchment, if there's not a teardrop on that piece of parchment as he wrote those words. Because of all the New Testament characters that had a trial of their faith, was it Peter that the Lord had warned him Peter, you're going to deny me. Lord, I'll never do it. I'll die with you. Peter, Satan's desired to have you, but I've prayed for you. And Peter goes, and at that campfire, he denies the Lord. You know, there was the trial of his faith. And he flat out failed. Flat out. But unlike Judas, 
He went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. And you know, you take Peter now writing this, he's able to look back on that experience and say that was more precious than gold. You know, it's something, you know, if I can put it this way, Peter would have never signed up for it. But in the aftermath of it, he wouldn't trade it for a million bucks. Right? It, was, it was the thing the Lord used in Peter's heart and in Peter's life that, that changed him absolutely. This is the Peter that on the day of Pentecost preached. This is the Peter that stood up before the Sanhedrin and said in Acts 4.12, there's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. This is a man who went from, you know, folding like a, a, a wet leaf on, you know, around a campfire with this little servant girl to boldly preaching before the very group of men that ordered Christ's death. And for Paul, or I'm sorry, for Peter, more precious than gold. He was tried. He was tried hard. But what joy and rejoicing it brought in his life and what an aftermath of testimony that there is in that. You know, Peter could have lived the rest of his days in this down-in-the-dumps pity party, I think he was still kind of in the down-in-the-dumps pity party when the Lord says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no good for nothing. Yeah, I have affections for you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I'm so weak. I don't, yes, I mean, I, I, I do, but I mean, and the Lord says, Peter, feed my sheep. You know, Peter, I think still in that moment was wrestling with his failure but it was overcome, and he went on to do great things for the Lord. And so walking with God this way causes you to understand, ultimately, that this life is not all there is. There's more that we live for. There's an eternity in view that's before us, because we're, we're living for eternity. We're not living for now. We're laying up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. And so even in affliction, we'll be overcome with grief, but that ties us here. Setting our affections on things above is going back to the very beginning when we were talking about walking with God. One of the, one of the first illustrations that I used in the whole study that we've been doing here is that of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress where evangelist told him, you see that light, that light of the celestial city, you walk with that light in your eye. Because there, there's something greater that you're... And, you know, you, the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian had all kinds of difficulties between here and there. But as long as that light was in his eye, he understood that there was a greater thing. And so the things of this life pale into insignificance when we live with a proper view of eternity. So move on to three. Bear them patiently. That's the third one. Bear them patiently. Patience is perhaps one of the highest and probably the hardest of all the Christian virtues. 
And he warns against several errors regarding patience in affliction. You know, we, we know we're supposed to patiently endure. The trial of your faith worketh patience. That's what the verse says that we've been dealing with here. But I think there are some, some misconceptions about dealing patiently with trials. And he addresses some of those misconceptions. And so the first one is that we are not called to just some stoic kind of patience. It's, it's not that as a believer, it's wrong for you to never show any emotion in affliction. Right, so it's possible to, to misunderstand what I was saying earlier about grief, of not being overcome with grief. Don't be led to the conclusion that, well, you know, I'm not supposed to have worldly grief. I'm supposed to have this godly sorrow, so I can't cry. Right? I, I, can't, I can't have emotion. I can't, I can't have any of that outward manifestation of, of sorrow and grief. That, that's not it at all, because we're not called to stoicism. When, when affliction comes, you know, it's, like the, it's like the joke maybe you've heard about the Calvinist. What did the Calvinist say when he fell down the stairs? Anybody ever heard this? Yeah, I'm glad that's over, right? You know, as if, you know, here's God's providence, I can't do anything about it, and, you know, and just this ridiculous, stoic, whatever will be, will be, and, you know, God's in charge, and that stoic kind of attitude. Um, turn up Romans 8.28. This is worth mentioning here, Romans 8.28. You want to all quote that together? Go for it. Okay, we know that all things work together for good. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes that verse is communicated in such a way that we're kind of led to believe that if you're really a faithful Christian, then you view everything that happens to you as being good. And that's not what the verse means. It's not what the verse says. We're not, even from Romans 8.28, we are not to think that everything is Good. What the verse says is that God is working everything for our good. But the means that the thing sometimes, we're, you are not as a Christian forced to say that it's good. Because sometimes it's bad. I've said that before several times. I've never... I've never really heard anybody enunciate it that way that I've thought about it, at least in the same words. Until just this past week, I was listening to a podcast, I highly recommend, by the way, called The Whole Council uh, by John Snyder. Media Gratier is the um, production of it, but it's called The Whole Council. John Snyder, a guy from Mississippi. 
And he said basically exact, exactly that same thing. He, he was talking about, um, he's going through a series right now of, uh, it's a work by uh, Archibald Alexander and the twilight years of life. And it's basically walking with God in the twilight years of life is Archibald Alexander's uh, little pamphlet thing that he did um, to elderly people in his congregation. But he was commenting and talking about Romans 8.28. And he made the statement basically the same way that I've said. You know, when we, we read Romans 8.28, it doesn't mean that everything is good. There are things that are really bad. But God in his own providential sovereignty takes the wrath of men and he praises himself with it. Right? He, he is able to use what is bad ultimately for our good. It's our conformity to Christ is the good that the Lord is working. So we're not called to just this stoic acceptance of whatever will be will be in, in patience. We're also not called to a fake patience simply to impress other people. It's not that you necessarily, you know, th this is what we do, right? And I, I commented on this in a message that, um, what was it, that message? Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. My introduction to that message was the, the way that we talk to one another at church, how you doing, and everything's fine, right? We're, we're, we're fine. I'm fine. Well, no, you're not fine. I'm not fine. You're not fine. We're not fine. Things awful happened this week, but it's polite to not complain, right? So we're just fine. And so we, we have, in a sense, this hypocritical, false, fake patience to impress other people. You know, we want to come across to others as if we're trusting the Lord. And so we put on a fake appearance of patience where really on the inside we're a wreck. You know, we're, we're all messed up. And we're not dealing with afflictions in, with a godly patience. We have all kinds of gripes and complaints to ourselves, but we, we put on this air to other people. We're also not called to, and the way he phrases it, is a hopeless kind of patience. And the way he talks about this is really similar to uh, being stoic, but it's, it's more of the attitude of th this hopeless kind of patience is, well, this is my lot in life. I just have to grin and bear it. I can't change it, so I just have to deal with it. We're not necessarily called to that kind of patience either because what that is doing is it views our affliction in this abstract way of this is just my lot in life. Can't do anything about it. I just have to go on, grin and bear it. Instead of having the right attitude of this is what God has for me now. And this is what God is using to strengthen me now. And you know from your experience, God is probably 
not going to use the same thing for a long, long time. This too shall pass. This is a season. This is the difficulty of now. And there'll be a new one later. But you'll learn from the one now. And you move on. And so in this patience, we live in the context that there is a God in heaven who loves us, who is doing the best thing for us in the best way that it can be done. And you know, this really is a, th- a synthesis of what we understand from the attributes of God. And I've mentioned this several times. You take the attributes of God and it's, it's, a, it's a healthy exercise to think about the attributes of God in connection with one another. How the attributes of God overlap with one another manifested in our life. So we know that God is love, right? God loves me. And so if God loves me, then I know he's not trying to hurt me. He's not being mean to me. He's not trying to injure me. He, whatever he's doing, he's doing it for my good because he loves me. Well, then I also take the attribute that God is wise. Well, if God is wise, then God knows all the possible situations that could happen, can happen. And so whatever he's doing out of love for me, I also have to conclude he's doing it in the wisest possible way that it can be done. I think about the attribute of his power. Nothing can thwart his purpose, there's nothing more powerful to undo what he's trying to do or accomplishing. And so he's doing the best thing, the best way for my best. And in that, I can have a patience through the difficulty and trust the Lord that he's doing the right thing. Scudder says this, This patience is a grace of the Spirit of God wrought in the heart and will of man through believing and applying the commandments and promises of God to himself, whereby for conscience sake towards God, he does submit his will to God's will, quietly bearing without bitterness and vexation all the labor, changes, and evil occurrences which befall him in the whole course of his life whether from God immediately or from man, as also waiting patiently for all such good things as God has promised, but yet are delayed and unfulfilled. God has promised good things. They may be delayed or unfulfilled in the moment. The verse I quoted just a moment ago, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. So in bearing afflictions patiently, we ultimately imitate Christ in this. And so a a great quote, watch Facebook on Wednesday. You might see this quote again on Wednesday on the Free Presbyterian Church's Facebook page. He says this, The excellency of Christ's sufferings was not in that he suffered, but in that he was obedient in his sufferings. He was obedient in his sufferings. It's not just the sufferings, but he obeyed. There was a patient endurance in those sufferings. And then D, we we bear these afflictions 
thankfully. We don't endure affliction simply because we've come to understand that we deserve them. I'm a sinner. All I deserve is bad, awful, horrible things. Right? It's not that we just roll over and play dead in our afflictions. That's kind of the stoic kind of aspect of it that we were talking about just a moment ago. And also, it's not that we endure them just simply knowing that they come from the hand of God and we can't do anything about them. But no, we have a thankful response to them. Turn to James chapter 1. These are verses that you already know um, in this context. James chapter 1. These are, this is one of those things where it's one of those verses where it's so easy to say in English but so difficult to mean in our heart. Where he says in James 1 verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Right? That's really easy to say, but to really live that way, to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. You know, I'm not very excited when affliction comes. But James says you ought to be joyful when affliction comes. Why? Because this is what you know. You know that the trying of your faith works patience. You know that the Lord is up to something good when he brings a trial in your life. And then he says, but let patience have her perfect work, the com a complete work. I'll put it this way. Let God play it through. Right? Let, let, let God finish what he's doing. God has a complete work that he's doing. That ye may be complete, perfect, may be complete and entire, wanting nothing. The Lord is ultimately bringing you to glorification. There's a lot of steps between where you are now and where you need to be. But thankfully, there's also a lot of steps between where you were and where you are. Right? The Lord is, has brought you from way back there. Right? And if, if the Lord could, could zoom you out right, and see how awful you were and how the Lord has, has worked in your life and brought you to this place but then you see where the Lord is taking you then we can be thankful for what the Lord is doing. He uses the illustration of a doctor. Right? You, you go to a doctor and you have aches and pains and hurts and there are some times in the situation where what the doctor has to do to you hurts way worse than the hurt. But he has to do that way more hurtful thing to fix the hurt. And you write him a check. Right? You're like, thank you for helping me. Man, that hurt. But thank you for helping me. Right? The, the hurtful thing is sometimes necessary. And the Lord does that. The Lord sometimes does in us a hurtful thing. But there's a good purpose behind that. And then we close with the last one. And that is bear them fruitfully. And so uh, look at Job 23.10. Well, let's skip the Job 23.10. I'll read that to you. Go to Hebrews 12. That's a longer passage. Go to Hebrews 12. 
Bear them fruitfully. What he means by this is don't waste your affliction. Don't waste your affliction by not learning the lesson from it. Don't let the the trials of life come and go without an honest spiritual reflection on, Lord, what are you doing? What What is it that I'm to learn from this? And that might be a hard question sometimes. You might, you might not necessarily on its face know the answer to that question. Lord, what are you doing right now? Sometimes we don't understand all that maybe the way we should. But the Lord is doing something. And this was Job's attitude. This a verse you're very familiar with, so that's why I say we just look at that one in Hebrews. But Job's attitude, Job 23.10 but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And so what Job is saying there, he knoweth the way that I take. That word way in Hebrew is a marked out path. Somebody has marked out the path. And we're not to understand that, that it was a path that Job had marked out. We're to understand here when it says, the Lord knoweth the way that I take, the Lord is actually the one that has marked out that path. The Lord is the one that has taken Job on this journey that he's on. We know that from Job chapter 1. Have you considered my servant Job? And Job came to the place of understanding that there was fruit to be had from the affliction. He's going to come forth as gold. And then this passage in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, look at verse 9. Hebrews 12, 9. So if you go back up to verse 7, the context here is enduring chastening. And he says, furthermore... We have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? And so, verse 9 there, we had fathers of our flesh that corrected us. So, put this in the context of children and parents, right? You have parents that correct their children. These are parents of the flesh, fathers of the flesh. They corrected their children. And the children respect that. You you corrected me. I respect that. But shall we not much more respect and have reverence to the Father of spirits, to the God of heaven that has corrected us and live accordingly? Verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. So what that means is, you know, we as parents, our chastening to our children is is temporal. And it's not according to our pleasure and, you know, we discipline however we want to. That's not what it means. It's we as parents, we discipline our children according to the best of our abilities, the best 
knowledge that we have of the situation and you know the, the punishment fits the crime kind of thing and we, and we try we try to discipline them rightly and and correctly the best we know how and so that's that's what it means there um for they verily few for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure but he that is god chastens us for our profit that ultimately we would be partakers of his holiness. Right? So this proves the point of what God is working in us. He is, through this chastening, sanctifying us. We as parents chasten in a way that is finite, in a way that is imperfect, in a way that is fallible. But yet God's chastening is infallible. It's, it's perfect. Because he's working in this for us to be a partaker of his holiness. Verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Right? Where's Caleb? Caleb's there. Yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast, somebody said something about somebody getting a spanking. And Caleb said, I'm proof that it works, right? <laughs> I'm proof that it works, right? So, right, in the, in the moment of the spanking, you weren't all that excited, right? But what does it do? The Lord has promised it works. It ultimately leads to the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. And the Lord's chastening, no offense to Paul and Sheila, but the Lord's chastening is more perfect than theirs, right? And more perfect than, you know, any parent, whatever. You know, our, our chastening is fallible. God's is not. God's is infinitely perfect. And so when the Lord does these things in our lives... Don't let them go to waste. Take affliction fruitfully. And so we'll, we'll finish up here with just one last quotation from Henry Scudder. He says, Be better, therefore, for crosses, for afflictions. Be better, therefore, for afflictions. Be profited by afflictions, is what he says. Then God has his end. When, after his plowing, harrowing, and threshing of you, he shall reap the harvest of well-doing, which he reaps not so much for himself as for you. For the ground that brings forth fruit, meat for him, receives blessing from God. And so God's chastening is not for him, it's for you, it's for me, it's, it's for us. The Lord is, is doing a fruitful thing. He's He's chastening to plow up the soil that good fruit would grow. And so bear affliction fruitfully as you walk with the Lord. We'll end there for today. So let's close in prayer. And may the Lord bless all this to us. Our Father, we do thank you for this time together this morning in your word. We pray that you would help us to walk with you in the good and the bad, 
and that we would be spiritually sensitive to what you are doing in our hearts, that uh, we would be careful to be thankful for your working in us. We thank you for that promise that you that have begun a good work in us will continue that work until the day of Christ. And so we pray that you would keep working in us. We, we would fear the day that you don't bring difficulty to us. Would, would that not mean that you're, you're finished with us or you're, you're no longer uh, concerned about our welfare? We, we know that you are concerned about those things. And we understand from Scripture that this is the means that you use to strengthen and help and mold us. And so we pray that you would help us to endure it patiently, thankfully, and fruitfully. Bless our worship service to follow. We pray for Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches. You will fill him with your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.